Welcome to another episode of Rethinking with Rosie. I apologize for the hiatus. Uh, it's just been a crazy time. And um, I today is known as Thanksgiving. I prefer to call it Thanksgiving. But um, I wanted to tell you why I decided to break up with the Thanksgiving holiday, which I started this year. Um, And that's why I emerged out of my hiatus to bring you this episode. Um, Let's see, what do I want to start with? Um, First of all, I just want to start with a warning um, because the reasons why I chose, I'm choosing not to celebrate things taking anymore is because um, of some pretty heavy reasons. So if you're not in the right emotional or mental state to hear that, then come back when you're ready. Um, just wanted to give you a content warning there. And also, I'll be using a several different resources, so you're going to hear some clicking, maybe some pages rustling as well. But um, to start off, my rethinking about Thanksgiving journey started a couple years ago when I read about the Pequot Massacre on a Facebook post. Um, today, the Pequot Massacre is more widely known Then last year, I read um, the article titled Thanksgiving, the National Day of Mourning by Alan Salway, who is known on social media as Lil Native Boy. And I'd like to share some highlights from the article. Um, It says, Columbus Day dresses up the genocide of our people as civilizing us. Halloween perpetuates the stereotypical Indian And the worst yet is Thanksgiving, the most nationalized, whitewashed version of history ever to happen to a marginalized group. On top of the very real, everyday problems natives currently still face, like living without running water or electricity, respected national institutions readily erase our history on this holiday. They mock us by wearing brown shirts to mimic our skin, using us in their plays and crafting sacred cultural items like dream catchers and headdresses for classroom festivities. I want to highlight the recent incident in North Dakota where natives lost their right to vote. Reminder that we were also the last to receive it. Natives are also exposed to mass amounts of racism during the first year of our Western educational journey which has been normalized for so long that even my parents had a hard time pinpointing it. I myself was usually the only Native student enrolled and was put into school plays where I was given the role of the happy Native boy bringing food to share with the pilgrims, followed by a feast where we give thanks and come together as one. In reality, the actual history behind Thanksgiving Day is dark and twisted. In 1637, the Pequot Massacre took place when over 700 indigenous men, women, and children were slaughtered in what's now known as Mystic, Connecticut. The following day, the governor declared a day of thanksgiving and held a feast to celebrate their victories in battle. 39 years later, in Massachusetts, the colonists declared a day of public celebration and thanksgiving, saying, There now scarce remains a name or family of them natives that are either slain, captivated, or fled. 
Right after the slaughtering of a tribe, including the beheading of Wampanoag chief Metacom, which remained on display for 25 years after King Philip's War, it was not until 1863 that Abraham Lincoln officially declared it a national holiday. In the same year, the Seahawks were being removed from Minnesota, during which the bounty for a Seahawks scalp was $25. This holiday can be sugar-coated as much as possible, as much as people like, to justify colonial violence, but note that it is a painful annual reminder of our genocide and white supremacy, two of the very foundations of this country alongside slavery. This day is viewed as a national day of mourning by several Native communities, which was started as a protest in 1970, organized by the United American Indians of New England to honor our ancestors and highlight the struggles they endured then to modern times, as well as the acknowledgement of the racism and oppression experienced today. So that concludes um, just the, the quotes I wanted to highlight from that article. And I really encourage you all to read the whole thing. Um, I quoted a, a large um, majority of it, but just not the whole thing. Um, and the article concludes by stating that Thanksgiving can serve as a reminder of the resilience and survival of indigenous people. And that is a reason why many indigenous people celebrate the holiday. I want to be clear that in sharing this article and my thoughts, I am not trying to get you to not celebrate Thanksgiving or Thanksgiving. In fact, I feel that telling people what they should or should not do is an aspect of colonialism that I want no part of. I'm sharing these thoughts so that you can understand my perspective. I encourage everyone to engage in critical self-reflection of the holiday of the holiday and our nation's history and to amplify indigenous voices today and every day. And then after you engage in critical self-reflection, then you can decide what to do after you've engaged in that process. I know that many people celebrate Thanksgiving because they want to be with their families and that not participating in the holiday could actually be harmful to some family relationships. But for me, personally, I never celebrated by gathering with my entire family, with my immediate and extended family. It was mainly just about the food, which I personally have decided to eat on Christmas instead. Also, after my dad passed away last year, the holiday is always marked by grief. So it is not difficult for me to give up the holiday as it's not as difficult for me to give up the holiday as it is for others. But it's still hard. It's hard because I plan to not celebrate the holiday ever again, and I'm sure that my decision will make others feel uncomfortable, but that's kind of the point. Even this year, I was invited to celebrate um, by a few different people, and I told them that I was not celebrating the holiday anymore. Um, so there's been, there's been several posts on social media about things taking that have been part of my learning journey. And I just wanted to share one that really struck me. Um, the, what, this post is shared by um, the username on Insta Instagram spelled P-H-A-G-G-O-T dot planet. And um, it says that Thanksgiving is a celebration of white supremacy. It is necessary to maintain the fantasy that is settler colonialism by gaslighting those whose lands you unjustly occupy. This so-called country is based on three things, the genocide of indigenous people for our lands, the enslavement of black folks to build on that land, 
and the erasure of both of those histories to gaslight us into assimilation. Just like Columbus Day, Thanksgiving is a genocidal holiday that celebrates the myth of a benign America. The fantasy that America was created out of peace and democracy, rather than the reality that this country was created through slavery, genocide, and resource extraction. So many white folks and non-indigenous people say they are our allies, but then celebrate this holiday with their families, and that is violence. You cannot celebrate Thanksgiving and claim to be an ally to indigenous people. You cannot redefine Thanksgiving. I'm guilty of this too. But the reality is Friendsgiving or Queersgiving is still held on stolen land by settlers. And y'all can't redefine our trauma to placate your inherited guilt. This holiday has become a time for people to come together and eat and share space and give thanks, which is a communal indigenous tradition that has been bastardized. Our communal lifeways were and are still criminalized. So to see those ways of being transposed into the settler colonial model is haunting. I don't care if it's time to see your family. See them another time. Coming together on Thanksgiving to communally share food while indigenous people have been brutalized, murdered, forced into boarding schools, criminalized, and still battle land theft is continued genocide. And that violence is not of the past. Our kin are still being arrested for protesting against pipelines. Our kin are still having our lands poisoned by extractive industries. Our kin are still going missing and being murdered at higher rates than any other demographic. Genocide is ongoing. So for y'all to sit down with family and friends and give thanks on stolen land while we are still fighting against the same issues that plagued us when settlers first came to our shores, is an act of complicit violence. You are participating in the continued violence against my peoples and our lands. You are still causing us harm, and you cannot redefine that harm. Thanksgiving celebrates the actual genocide of indigenous people. It cannot be redefined or reinterpreted. It stands as a marker to subjugate indigenous people under a settler colonial narrative of peaceful relations when in fact our lives have been defined by settler violence. It is also not a coincidence that you all eat our foods during this holiday. That is not in celebration of us saving y'all from starvation back in the day. It is a marker of subjugation. To eat our sacred foods while we starve and die is not honorable. To eat turkey, a revered animal and kin with no respect to their part in our world is appalling. To eat squash, potatoes, pumpkin, cranberries, beans, etc. while indigenous people often do not have access to those foods is unjust. We are criminalized for practicing food sovereignty, our farms destroyed, our trap lanes cut, and yet you all can consume our foods without hesitation? That is deplorable. The food you eat is gathered by indigenous people who don't receive proper benefits or rights because they are on the wrong side of the so-called border. Your turkey was factory bred and slaughtered without reverence for their soul or life. How can you celebrate our genocide so brutally? What is there to celebrate? You can be thankful for friends or family on any other day. Not this day. Um, as, I, as I mentioned, this post... Uh, really stood out to me and it basically sums, sums up what I've learned about settler colonialism over 
the past year and a half, um, or basically unlearned about settler colonialism over that time frame. And most of it is actually just a summary of facts, of truths. Um, but there's a lot of the person, the author's personal opinion within it too. Um, the author does not share the same point of view as I do, um, which is that, you know, I want to let people decide what to do with the holiday. Um, the author clearly states like, don't celebrate it. It's not okay to celebrate it. Um, but I applaud them for sharing these opinions and I applaud them for sharing them in that way. Um, the author of this post is indigenous and, um, as I mentioned, not all indigenous people, um, refuse to celebrate the holiday. There's some people who celebrate it as a celebration of resilience and survivance. But that post got me to really think critically about why I was celebrating the holiday. And I asked myself, why was it okay to know all that I do about the U.S. history of violence and still participate in celebration on that on this day? And the answer for me was that it wasn't. I do not feel comfortable engaging in any celebration on this day because the knowledge I have does not match with the action of celebrating on this day. Um, I would like to talk more about some of the things that were mentioned in that post, some of the truths or facts. Um, so first off, in the book called An Indigenous People's History of the United States, um, and this is actually from the, the Young People's Edition, um, which I highly recommend everyone read it. You can choose just like the original or the young people's edition, but it is really an essential read. And I'm going to just share a little bit out of this book um, that I think is just really important information. And this is coming from the introduction of the book, actually. It says, in the late 15th century, as European explorers sailed to unfamiliar places, their actions and beliefs were guided by the doctrine of discovery, the idea that European nations could claim the foreign lands they discovered. The doctrine of discovery was laid out in a series of communications from the Pope, leader of the Catholic Church, who was extremely influential in European politics at the time. It asserted that indigenous inhabitants lost their natural right to the land as soon as Europeans arrived and claimed it. People whose homelands were discovered were considered subjects of the Europeans and were expected to do what the discoverers wished. If they resisted, they were to be conquered by European military action. This enabled Columbus to claim the Taino people's Caribbean home for Spain and to kidnap and enslave the indigenous people. Similarly, the Pilgrims and the Puritans, the first groups from England to settle what became the United States, believed they had a covenant with God to take the land. The doctrine of discovery influenced the policies of the young United States and directly affected the lives and the very existence of Native people. However, history textbooks for young people rarely invite students to question or think critically about that part of the U.S. origin story. Free land, with all its resources, was a magnet that attracted European settlers to the Americas. The word settler is used so frequently that most people do not recognize that it means more than just a person who settles down to live in a new place. Throughout history, it has also meant a person who goes to live where, supposedly, no one has lived before. More often than not, settlers have gone to live somewhere that is already home to someone else. They are important to a nation, like Britain or Spain, when it plans to set up colonies in an area. 
Colonization is the process of taking political and economic control of a region, and colonizers are the people or institutions that are part of that process, the military, business interests, people who go there to live, and sometimes representatives of religious institutions. Because of their key role in establishing and populating a colony, settlers may be called colonizers. Settlers who came to what is currently known as North America wanted land for homes, farms, and businesses that they could not have in their home countries. Settlers who used the labor of enslaved Africans wanted limitless land for growing cash crops. Under their nation's flags, those Europeans fought native people for control of that land. Even when the United States consisted of just a few states on the eastern seaboard, the country's founders fully intended for America to extend from sea to shining sea. In fact, the first law of the new nation was created because of that demand for land. The Continental Congress wrote the Northwest Ordinance in 1787, two years before the Constitution was ratified. It allowed settlers to live in Indian Territory west of the Appalachian and Allegheny Mountains, before that, the British government's proclamation of 1763 prohibited settlement there. And um, in 1801, President Thomas Jefferson described the intent to expand the boundaries of the United States, saying, It is impossible not to look forward to distant times with our rapid multiplication will cover the whole northern, if not the southern continent, with a people speaking the same language, governed in similar forms and by similar laws. This idea eventually came to be called Manifest Destiny, the belief that English-speaking Americans were destined to spread their presence and their ideals across the entire continent. Manifest Destiny was the banner under which the homelands of indigenous peoples would be taken. Uh, and then it goes on uh, to talk a little bit more about... Um, you know, just how we just normalize the doctrine of discovery and manifest destiny, but now I want to skip to the indigenous perspective. Today in the United States, there are more than 500 federally recognized indigenous nations composed of nearly 3 million people. These are the descendants of the 15 million original inhabitants of the land, the majority of whom were farmers who lived in towns. The indigenous people's land base has also been drastically reduced since first contact with Europeans. Uh, much of the remaining land consists of more than 300 federally recognized reservations. The concept of reservation confining an indigenous group to a reserved land base in exchange for U.S. government protection from settlers arose during the era of U.S. expansion and treaty making that spanned the years from independence to 1871. Although Native historians and scholars have written at length about how events in U.S. history have impacted Indigenous peoples, their perspectives are often not included in history courses. Instead, students are taught another origin story, one about the U.S. as a nation of immigrants. Native peoples, to the extent that they are included at all, are conveniently renamed First Americans, which cast them as immigrants, usually from Asia across the Bering Strait undermining their claims to the land. The nation of immigrants framework obscures the U.S. practice of settler colonialism. This book takes the view that settler colonialism was key to building the United States. The goal of settler colonialism is to take over all resources in a region, particularly the land. 
During the colonial era, for example, European businesses, business corporations received military support to take over and use land and other resources for profit in foreign areas around the world, including what came to be known as the Americas. As more and more settlers arrived, one settlement paved the way for another and another. This gave the European governments and the government-backed corporations control and influence farther and farther from the original settlements. The U.S. followed a similar growth model after independence. The following ideas are basic to American settler colonialism. White supremacy. The idea that European American civilization is superior to those of the American Indians and of the Africans who were enslaved for economic gain is called white supremacy. At the individual level, this means that white lives are seen as more valuable than those of darker skinned people. African American slavery. Although slavery is mostly associated with the American South, the entire country as it grew benefited from the enslavement of people, primarily Africans and African Americans. A policy of genocide and land theft. The United Nations now defines genocide as an act or acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethical, racial, or religious group. These acts are killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. So I'm going to stop there. Again, I really recommend that you get that book, um, especially if you have kids, um, because, and if you're a teacher, please use it. But, um, yeah, so I grew up with the belief that, you know, manifest destiny, doctrine of discovery, I didn't even know those terms, but just the belief that, like, you know, this was sacred land, the Constitution's sacred, um, God led people here, and, um, and, you know, that is basically based on white supremacy because it's basically saying that God um, wanted all these people to die and to suffer, which does not make any sense. And um, regarding genocide, um, yes, the U.S. engaged and is currently engaging in genocide. So the U.S. Um, committed genocide or genocidal acts against indigenous people, and they are still committing those acts um, in the, the camps that they have at the border, um, where they're doing forced sterilizations and they are separating families, that's genocide. Um, people are coming, trying to come to the U.S. as they are seeking asylum and the U.S. is killing them or causing them to, you know, not have kids anymore or taking away their kids. Um, and then I just want to add to these atrocities and say that if you think that the colonizers accidentally spread diseases to the indigenous people, you're wrong. So here's a quote from history.com. Um, I also read it in one of my books, but I couldn't, I didn't have the time to go through and find the quote. So I'm just sharing this one from history.com that says, North American colonists warfare against Native Americans often was horrifyingly brutal. But one method they appear to have used, perhaps just once, shocks even more than all the bloody slaughter. The gifting of blankets and linens contaminated with smallpox. 
The virus causes a disease that can inflict disfiguring scars, blindness, and death. The tactic constitutes a crude form of biological warfare, but accounts of the colonists using it are actually scant. Uh, Colonial weaponizing of smallpox against Native Americans was first reported by 19th century historian Francis Parkman, who came across correspondence in which Sir Geoffrey Amherst, commander-in-chief of the British forces in North America in the early 1760s, had discussed its youth with um, Colonel Henry Bouquet, a subordinate on the western frontier during the French and Indian War. So I'm just going to stop there, but... um, there's proof that the colonizers purposely spread diseases by throwing these contaminated blankets or gifting these contaminated blankets and linens, as it says here, um, to the indigenous people. Um, they knew that there was disease on them. Like, how could you not know that? It wasn't an accident. You know, they, they took these blankets that people that people had died using them and then they gave them away, hoping that they would catch the same disease. So... It's not an accident. Um, This is not a sacred story. Um, This country was invaded on purpose, and it is arrogant to think that colonizers were led by God. If you claim to believe in a loving God, and you believe that God led the pilgrims and Columbus to the Americas, you need to realize that those two beliefs conflict. A loving God would never lead people to kill their other children. If God led people here, they certainly stopped listening to God when they arrived. Indigenous people are living in a post-apocalyptic world, and guess what? We live in that world with them. Um, so over the last couple of weeks, uh, as, I have been, as I have been grappling with the decision to celebrate Thanksgiving or not, I have also been reading the book, As We Have Always Done, by Leanne Simpson. The book is another must-read, in my opinion. The author is an indigenous scholar who lives in what we now call Canada, and I just want to take this time to mention that borders are a colonial construct. This land we live on was originally known as Turtle Island, uh, and that's an English translation of what it was originally known as. The indigenous people traveled throughout what we know today as the U.S., Canada, Mexico, and the country south of Mexico, too, That means that today we have divided indigenous people because we divided the land. In fact, the Tejono Ohodom nation encompasses Arizona and Mexico. This is one reason why I get so angry about our immigration laws because Mexicans are the descendants of the indigenous people and this is their land. People who came here from an entirely different continent are the ones that should be proving that they have permission to live here. And by permission, I do not mean papers. I mean a commitment and responsibility to the land and to indigenous values. However, I also want to state that Mexico has also oppressed indigenous people and taken their lands. So all three of these large countries are complicit in settler colonialism and the invasion is ongoing because all three countries are still taking indigenous land. They are still criminalizing indigenous people, which leads to the povertization of indigenous people. Okay, so now back to Leanne Simpson's book. Um, This book is life-changing, and I just want to share a few things from it that I will probably never stop thinking about. So the first I want to talk about is capitalism and anti-capitalism. Capitalism did not always exist, and it will not always exist. It isn't eternal. Capitalism came with colonization. 
Here is an indigenous perspective on anti-capitalism. Nana Bush, which is a figure in um, the stories from this particular indigenous um, group, Um, This is a little quote talking about Nana Bush. It says, Nana Bush did not walk the world to see how natural resources could be harnessed or how people could be exploited into a particular economic or political system. Nana Bush walked the world to understand their place in it, our place in it, to create face-to-face relationships with other nations and beings because Nana Bush understood that the Nishnabeg, that we all are linked to all of creation in a global community. So that's the end of that quote. And I just want to say, what if we all existed to understand our place in the world instead of existed to gain as much money or capital as possible? What kind of world would that look like? I I hope that I can one day live in that kind of world. Another quote from the book I want to share, it says, the dismantling of global capitalism is inseparable from the struggle for indigenous sovereignty, self-determination, and nationhood because capitalism at its core is not just incompatible with core indigenous values, but has to violently shred the bodies who house those values in order to sustain itself. Capitalism cannot create indigenous worlds because, as Vijay Prashad says, capitalism has never been able to produce decency. That's the end of that quote, and on that quote, I just want to say that there is no ethical way to engage in capitalism because it relies on unethical practices like exploitation of workers to function. Another quote I want to share says, Indigenous peoples, in my mind, are more have more expertise in anti-capitalism and how that system works than any other group of people on the planet. We have thousands and thousands of years of experience building and living in societies outside of global capitalism. We have hundreds of years of direct experience with the absolute destruction of capitalism. And also this one. We had the ethics and knowledge within grounded normativity to not develop this system because to do so would have violated our fundamental values and ethics regarding how we relate to each other and the natural world. We chose not to repeatedly over our history. So those are the end of those quotes about capitalism and anti-capitalism. And that last one about indigenous people choosing not to have this kind of system, this capitalist system that we have today. Um, They chose not to because they knew better. They knew it was wrong. They knew that it would lead to their destruction. Um, But yet the colonizers who came over here were not capable of thinking in that way. And so today... It is because of the system that we have nearly extracted all the resources from our planet. Um, And it's controversial to talk about putting limits on extracting these resources so that we can have this planet for a little longer, um, maybe have the planet recover. Um, So we're just in a very big mess, a very, very big mess. Um, But also in this book, she talks about... Um, our animal relatives. And I'm really sensitive to animals. I love all animals, even if some scare me. I respect them. 
I will cry on cue if I hear or watch a sad or touching story about an animal and I feel very bad about eating animals and I do I do eat some animals um not not all animals but I feel bad about eating them because of the unethical way they live and die and what Simpson says about animals um she says does the moose see me as someone who is seeking her consent through my offerings, prayers, and practices to harvest her body so that my family can live? Does that moose see me as someone who is engaging with her in the relational terms set out in our diplomacy? The act of hunting requires an animal's consent to return to the spirit world by appearing and then physically dying, allowing its spirit to travel through the doorway back to the spirit world. I'm speechless because of those quotes. Just absolutely speechless. I I wish that, you know, we could... I want us to change the way that we are treating our animal relatives. And when we talk about capitalism exploiting people, let's add animals to that. Um, they're not people, but they're beings, just as valuable as people. And... Look how they're treated because of capitalism. So whatever you do on this day and whatever you call it, I urge you to learn about and support indigenous people because we honestly rely on them to survive. Um, the last thing that I wanted to mention is the land back movement, which is something, you know, if you're wondering, what can I do today? You know, I don't want to stop celebrating it, but I want to do something. I urge you to learn about the land back movement, to get involved in it. I'm going to share with you what it says on the, the website for um, land back. Um, land back is a movement that has existed for generations with a long legacy of organizing and sacrifice to get indigenous lands back into indigenous hands. Currently, there are land back battles being fought all across Turtle Island to the north and the south. Um, we are stepping into this legacy with the launch of the land back campaign as a mechanism to connect, coordinate, resource, and amplify this movement and the communities that are fighting for land back the closure of Mount Rushmore, return of that land in all public lands in the Black Hills. South Dakota is our cornerstone battle from which we will build out this campaign. Not only does Mount Rushmore sit in the heart of the sacred Black Hills, but it is an international symbol of white supremacy and colonization. To truly dismantle white supremacy and systems of oppression, we have to go back to the roots which for us is putting indigenous lands back in indigenous hands. In addition, land back is more than just a campaign. It is a meta-narrative that allows us to deepen our relationships across the field of organizing movements, working toward true collective liberation. It allows us to envision a world where black, indigenous, and people of color liberation coexists. It is our political organizing and narrative framework framework from which we do the work. And here are four land back campaign demands. One, dismantle white supremacy structures that forcefully removed us from our lands and continue to keep our peoples in oppression. Two, defund white supremacy and the mechanisms and systems that enforce it and disconnect us from stewardship of the land. 
three, return all public lands back into indigenous hands, and four, consent, moving us out of an era of consultation and into a new era of policy around free and prior informed consent. Basically, indigenous people need to be able to have their land back. They need to be able to engage in their sacred, traditional ways of farming and hunting. They need to be able to govern themselves. And if we let them do all those things, we will benefit because they take care of the land they always have. We're the ones that aren't taking care of it. We colonizers, and I'm one of them. I'm a settler of color, and I'm trying to um, decolonize my mind and heart. I, I seek for an anti-colonial society. And that basically ties into why I am choosing not to celebrate Thanksgiving anymore. Um, I want to live in a society where we're thankful every day, uh, where we gather with family more than just once a year, uh, where we don't have to just express our gratitude during one month of the year or worse, even a day. Um, I don't want to live in a society where we need to have Thanksgiving. And so I feel like stopping the celebration of that holiday is me showing that an anti-colonial world is possible. And even if that means that it's just my world, that I make my world as anti-colonial as possible um, with the people that I am around and in my sphere of influence, if that's all I can do, it's worth doing. Um, but I hope that you learned something from this episode and I appreciate your time. Thanks for listening. Until next time.